As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. The Athletic. So Arsenal are top of the Premier League, having beaten Liverpool at the weekend. Are they serious title contenders then and how have they turned things round at the Emirates? I'm Mark Chapman. This is The Athletic Football Podcast. Just over 15 minutes to go. Arsenal have led 1-0 and been pegged back. They've led 2-1 and been pegged back. Can they go in front for the third time in this high-profile fixture, which means so much, particularly to the Gunners? Bakaya Saka against Alisson. And he fires it in emphatically. Job done by the young man. His second goal in the game. And Arsenal lead 3-2. So I'm joined to talk Arsenal by the Athletics' David Ornstein, uh, Liverpool writer James Pearce with us as well, who was at the Emirates yesterday. Um, we'll prolong your pain, James, and talk Liverpool uh, in a moment. You'll just have to listen to Arsenal joy from David, first of all. Uh, where's the big change come in the last 12 months? Well, where to begin? I think it's uh, an example that you don't need to overcomplicate these things, but you do need to apply patience because Arsenal backed Mikel Arteta squarely in bad times and in better um, when there was intense scrutiny over his position in the early part of last season. They were absolutely uh, unequivocal in their support for him. There was at no stage any wavering from anybody in the Arsenal hierarchy, that he was going to be continuing as manager. They have been wholehearted in their vision. And that's really Edu as technical director in conjunction with Arteta as head coach and then manager. They've actually slimmed down their structure, whereas a lot of clubs beef it up and Arsenal did previously. Uh, Less is more seems to be the approach they've taken. And... Make sure you've got a really tight unit of uh, people from ownership level to executives to those on the grass. And that that sort of togetherness permeates down to the squad. They've had to do a lot of surgery to that. 
unit uh, in terms of players leaving, players coming. Not everything has gone well and it won't necessarily continue to. But they've got to a place now where everybody absolutely knows their roles. They believe in each other. They know where they're going. They're sticking to it. And around this largely young nucleus with a sprinkling of trusted and experienced players, um, they've they've struck a good chord. They've got on top of the contractual situation a lot better than they had done in previous years. Their recruitment has been really impressive on the whole. And one of the most important factors that we cannot understate, even though it's pretty obvious to everybody, is the connection with the fans. We'll bring in James shortly to speak about Liverpool. They know all about that. But Arsenal simply didn't have a decent atmosphere at the Emirates Stadium after moving in 2006. There were the odd high point um, when big teams were beaten or there were stirring comebacks. But now every single game... The fans are creating a febrile atmosphere. That positivity extends to social media and, and conversation around the support base. You can see that the footballing credit will definitely go to Arteta and his coaching team and certainly the development of young players under him. Uh, a lot of the stuff that you have talked about there, presumably the credit has to go to Edu. Yeah, Edu is technical director, having sort of assumed full control after the departure of Raul Sanlehi, who was head of football, definitely has steered this ship forward. Even those who I speak to now who were previously cynical at other clubs and in other roles within football are now sort of holding their hands up. What were they cynical about? Well, Edu came to English football in this role. Of course, he'd been an invincible as a player with Arsenal and played elsewhere in Europe too. As a rookie, as a novice, when it came to being a sporting director, technical director, director of football in the European game, he had worked at, I think, Corinthians. He had worked for the Brazil national team. And those are roles that should not be sniffed at. However, he hadn't operated within the British European transfer markets or club system. And you're not coming into sort of any club. You're coming into one of the biggest clubs, but also at a time where they've gone through such incredible amounts of change. And there were a lot of claims. Is he over-reliant on certain agents and uh, a small amount of relationships and going to do all his deals with them? Who really runs that relationship? Is it Edu as technical director or Mikel Arteta who had endorsed his promotion from head coach to manager. There were some who even questioned at various points in, in recent years if Edu was going to be the next to go after the likes of Sanlehi, Hasfami, Sven Mislintat, Ivan Gazidis all departed and more. And he survived and he's earned the trust of the ownership. And I've talked on this podcast, many of the successful ownerships have their person on the ground in the UK in terms of Man City's model is quite unique because, you know, Khaldun Mubarak is the go-between when it comes from Abu Dhabi to Manchester. He, he's not here all the time. And then you've got Ferran Soriano, Chiki Bagiristain, very clear delineation. You've got Mike Gordon on behalf of FSG with Liverpool. You had Marina Granovskaya on behalf of Roman Abramovich at Chelsea. And Arsenal didn't really have that. But in Edu, I feel that he really does have the trust of the Kroenke family, who we've always said and reported that they place their 
trust in their executives on the ground throughout their sports franchises and they give them the authority to deliver if they deliver then they get the backing if they don't then then they're out they've also added tim lewis into this mix who helped them with their takeover he was a clifford chance lawyer he has increased in influence in in more recent times and to the extent where when you talk to other executives around football and even people at arsenal they say that he really is the man running the show. We reported in, in my Monday column last week that he, he has actually resigned from his position at Clifford Chance. And although he remains non-exec at Arsenal, is spending more time than ever before on Arsenal. Vinay Venkateshwam remains the chief executive, of course. But Tim Lewis is kind of the eyes and ears for the Cronkies on the ground. And I think that Edu has, has benefited from that. Uh, and he has been given the freedom to implement his ideas, his visions. There's still a lot of work to do across academy and first team. But yes, he um, is responsible for a lot of the good work that's gone on there. Um, and there's still a lot more to be done. Yeah, we'll come on to, to what else needs to be done uh, in a little while. Right then, James, where do you want to start? <laughs> uh, like therapy, this chap is. <laughs> well, yes. I, honestly, many times over the last few years, this podcast has felt like therapy for a whole variety <laughs> of correspondents for their clubs and, and fans as well. So tell me about your worst fears, James. <laughs> what is most alarming for me is that Liverpool keep on making the same mistakes over and over again. And I think that's... That's why, for me, this is the biggest challenge, the biggest crisis that that Klopp has been wrestling with since he first walked through the door seven years ago. Because I think, yes, there was a torrid run of results two years ago, but that was at a time when Liverpool didn't have a single senior centre back still standing. It was it was quite clear, clear and obvious then where where the problems stem from and why things have been derailed. I think it is a lot more complex this time. I think it's lots of different factors coming together right from the kind of the mental and physical effects of of a 63 game season last season and then missing out on the two biggest prizes in the, the way they did i think the knock on effect of, of of then of a shortened pre-season you know the injuries that kicked in then you know the the early setbacks just seem to have sapped belief in a team that were were like a winning machine for so long to see them go behind inside a minute at the emirates and then I think what was most galling for me was I actually thought Liverpool played really well for most of the first half. You know, they 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 were seconds away from, I think, going into half time with Klopp being much the happier of the two managers because they'd got back on level terms deservedly. And then to shoot themselves in the foot in the way they did with that second Arsenal goal was, I mean, it was absolute madness. It came from, you know, an attacking free kick and you know, the ball breaks loose and within seconds, it's a 4v3 breakaway. Klopp said afterwards, he doesn't think the system is at fault. There are other things at fault. And he, he then said, you know, and when asked whether he was worried, he said, yes, he is deeply concerned. Now, I, I mean, I go back to Liverpool over the last couple of years, James, and they've always had... They have always had a problem with teams getting in behind them. I mean, if you go long behind them, you can call, you can cause them problems. A team's just being able to take advantage of that more. I mean, I, I, can, rec I can recall them playing at Tottenham last year, and Tottenham absolutely, the, high, the line was, Liverpool's line was so high, Tottenham were in virtually every time they went over the top. The way that Klopp wants Liverpool to play, like, 
when it doesn't work, it can look absolutely disastrous. The argument always is with the high line is that the, the problem is not the high line. It's the pressure on the ball not being good enough yeah. further up the pitch. And it's a high risk, high reward strategy that Klopp embarks on. And and of course, it's not it, it's not that easy to exploit because if it was, Liverpool wouldn't have got 90 odd points and come within mm. a point of winning the title last season and you know threatened to win, win an unprecedented quadruple for for a long time. But my point is um, that it's very easy to blame the defence and, and they get a lot of stick at the moment. But as I, I've highlighted, we have seen teams getting behind them in the past. Now, that it, it, as you say, it's it, it's about looking further forward as, as well, really, as to where those problems originate. Yeah, it, it's definitely a collective issue. It would be, it, it would be massively unfair to point a finger at Virgil van Dijk or, you know, of course, Trent Alexander-Arnold has been a lightning rod for criticism so far this season. It, it's a collective malaise. That's the, that's the big, and that's, that's what's so worrying for Klopp, the fact that, it, you know, it, it's not just one thing. It, it's right the way through the team. And those, all three goals yesterday, I know obviously there was a huge amount of controversy around whether it should have been a penalty for the, for the winner, but just, just look at the panic and the lack of organisation and the lack of composure that, that set in and how many chances Liverpool had to clear their lines in the in the build-up to that. And, and Klopp's right, it's not the system. You know, Liverpool actually changed systems you know, for the midweek game against Rangers and looked a lot more secure. They, you know, I wouldn't blame the system. I thought it was bold of him to stick with what's essentially a 4-4-2 at the Emirates. But you know, it, it, that, that wasn't the issue to blame. It was, it was, it was individual errors, people not doing their jobs properly. And and that's been the story of the season. They, they seem to be half a yard late to everything. It's just too easy to get at Liverpool now. I think that was why it was so demoralising for them leaving the Emirates on Sunday. The fact that all the good things about that performance were just completely and utterly wasted by the manner in which they, they shot themselves in the foot. James, you mentioned the system is not to blame. Um, from my perspective, sort of standing on the outside looking in, with a sort of wider and sort of less detailed um, picture as you have. When Darwin Nunes was signed for a deal worth up to 100 million euros, you obviously have to change your style somewhat because he has to be the go-to man at that sort of value. And obviously Sadio Mane left as well. And then in his first home game, he gets sent off. He's banned for three games. You revert to... Roberto Firmino and then Darwin Nunes comes back but his fitness and with the international break wasn't all that it Liverpool would have hoped and then he plays yesterday and he, he, he actually played really well I thought but how much has that changed to the dynamic maybe even if it's subconsciously affected that Liverpool chemistry or has it not at all? I think what has happened since the back end of last season is Liverpool have completely lost their identity as a as a team and I think I think you mentioned then all the different chopping and changing that there's been. And, you know, I think Klopp is still striving to try and properly kind of embed Nunes in the team and what's the best way of setting up to try and get the best out of him. You know, I think there's a, there's an obvious knock-on effect there in terms of Salah, who has, has been a pale shadow of his former self, you know, spending too far too long, stuck, isolated out on the on the right side. And, you know, I, I think there's just there's so many reasons. I think, you know, Fabino, who was quite rightly dropped against Rangers and didn't start against Arsenal, you know, he's been so integral to what Liverpool have achieved in recent years. Yet, 
you know, for, for whatever reason, he's been a mile off it this season and, and they don't have anyone else like quite like him. And I, th- I think that was a big part of Klopp deciding to ditch his favoured 4-3-3 and go to 4-4-2. And I, I think he, he's almost been forced to try something different to try and shake them out of this, the malaise that's, that's kind of set in since, since August. I don't think that the, the formation is to blame. It, it's more for me, so many key personnel within that just for, for a whole collection of reasons, being way below the usual standards. How do they get themselves out of this? Well, I mean, the worry is that it could get worse before it gets better with Manchester City coming to Anfield next Sunday. And then, you know, to throw into the mix, you've got, you know, I was there at the Emirates, you've got Luis Diaz leaving the ground with a, a brace on his knee and on crutches, having a scan today, Alexander-Arnold having a scan on his ankle. Um, you know, Diaz has been by far and away Liverpool's best player this season. So if if he was to miss, you know, to say, you know, if he was out until after the World Cup, that would be a be an absolute hammer blow to them. So, um, yeah, they. I mean, this is where an elite manager like Klopp and his staff earn their money, isn't it? They have to, they have to. You know, we, we've we've talked so often in the past about Klopp being this expert man manager and ability to say the right thing at the right time and you know, get every last drop out of these players. You know, th- this is why, for me, this is the biggest test he's faced since he's come in because Liverpool are a mess. And not only can they forget about the title, but they can forget about the top four if they don't start, you know, start get putting some results together. I mean, I mean the, the painful reality at the minute is there is there is, they're closer to the bottom three than they are to the top four at the moment. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. I find it quite interesting that we were talking about Arsenal earlier and one of the issues that they were sort of lambasted for was the renewing of older players to massive new contracts, Mesut Ozil, Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang, and then the drop-off they experienced after that. And there were sort of suggestions that they'll never do that again um, as they look to rebuild with these younger players. And... Seems that that's something that Liverpool risk having done with with Mo Salah with his new contracts and the drop drop off we've seen so far since. Of course, that can change, and we know his un, undoubted quality. And then another comparison, James, is the injuries. Arsenal were absolutely riddled with injuries for a long time. They did a lot of chopping and changing behind the scenes in terms of medical personnel. Liverpool currently don't have a, a permanent club doctor. They've had Andreas Schlumberger come in, who's sort of Klopp's a trusted medic um, from Dortmund and the Germany national team. Um, and he's gaining sort of a lot of power. And as I understand it, I think there are going to be some more appointments potentially at some point. And these injuries, whether accidental or muscular, just keep totting up. A very um, uncharacteristic signing in, in the case of Artur Mello, who barely played. And there's suggestions that he was carrying injury problems before the latest news that you revealed about his surgery. On those two fronts, it seems just very unlike Liverpool. I think there's two, probably two separate issues there. I think one, in terms of the recruitment side of things, I, I, I you know wrote numerous times in the summer that 
they were taking a massive risk not further bolstering that midfield. He wanted Chuameni, didn't he? Yeah, yeah. And and obviously, you know, he would have you know, dearly loved Bellingham if Bellingham had been on the market this summer, but that was never, ever a possibility. So, you know, Liverpool's stance for so long was, no, we're going to sit tight. We've got enough. And I think nagging away, you were thinking, well, and Klopp would obviously talk about numbers in midfield. And it was like, well, it's not so much the numbers that worries people. It's the lack of durability and availability of some of those personnel, like for Cater and Oxley chamberlain their injury records, Thiago, you know, has missed a third of each of the Premier League seasons he's spent at Liverpool so far. And then, so that, you know, you don't do anything. And then, and then of course, when injuries kick in, you end up, you know, really panicking and going and bringing in Artemelo on, on deadline day and a player who's, you know, who wasn't fit, you know, he wasn't, he needed, he needed a pre-season and he's played 13 minutes of football and now, won't kick a ball for Liverpool again until, you know, January, February at the at the absolute earliest. So um, there's certainly questions there on the recruitment front, because I think I think things can go stale if you don't freshen things up enough. With Salah, I think it's too soon to say that they've made a big mistake there, giving him, a, a, a you know, that, that massive contract. I've seen people say, oh, you know, typical, you know, player gets massive pay rise and eases off. I, you know, that... That for me is unfair on Salah because, you know, it, it, that's not him. That's not that's not the most Salah anyone at Liverpool knows. So he he will be as devastated as anyone else with the way things are going for him at the minute. You know, for to only have two Premier League goals to his name in October is is uncharted territory for him. And and to be taken off when you know at two two yesterday, Liverpool you know the game in the balance and and Klopp takes him off brings on Fabino and shifts Henderson out to the right side and you know he was very ineffective again and I think you know again is there like a fatigue issue there because he played he's played a crazy amount of football and you go back to last season and you know with Afcon and and everything else you know that it, you know it's not a you know his his output did did dip and fall off in the in the second half of last season. Um, and he hasn't been able to get back to to where he's been at. But I, I also think Liverpool have been f- failing to get the best out of him because he has been too isolated on that right hand side in in the way that they've been approaching games. But yeah, you know, the kind of getting Salah firing again is is going to be absolutely crucial to Klopp's hopes of, of salvaging something from this season. Just to finish this section, following on from from Liverpool and contracts, David. I mean, Arsenal will have some contracts to sort out, weren't they? In, in some ways, renewing players' contracts are more of a minefield than actually signing them in the in the first place. And we talk about how together they are, this young squad and dynamics. You know, one big new contract for one young player can then send all the other young players going, well, hang on a minute. I'll knock on the manager's door and and I want, I want a similar deal. And they do have some contracts to renegotiate, yes? They do, and it's a bloody experience expensive process um, that they're going to embark upon because they want to renew Bakayo Saka as a priority and it has been for some months now. Um, I think they would have liked to have done it over the summer during the transfer window. It didn't happen and and they'll hope that it does um, in the times ahead, obviously. I think his contract, uh, obviously, it does have some time to run and there's an option in there as well, which Arsenal have got in a lot of their contracts, including Gabriel Martinelli, which I think it was reported in the Evening Standard last week, has 2024 plus two years. Um, So there's security there. But when you see players performing at the level of Gabriel Martinelli, it's not how long you've got to run 
and a club just sitting back and being complacent about it. You need to reward these players and recognise them because they all build admirers from elsewhere who will pay them the money that they believe they deserve if you don't. And so you need to get round to dealing with situations like that. Similar, William Saliba, um, who is under contract till 2024. And Mikel Arteta has made the right noises about all of these situations in in the last week, I think, um, saying that Arsenal are working on it. But that is going to be a potentially tricky negotiation because Saliba, for however well he's doing and, and the love he's showing for Arsenal and vice versa, he spent three years out on loan after signing from Saint-Étienne. Those were not easy three years. Arsenal didn't feel he was ready. Arteta didn't feel he was ready. And it, and it looks like it's been managed really well now, um, but people don't forget these things quickly. And so you have to manage it in a delicate way. And it even extends lower down. We revealed in my Monday column this morning that Charlie Patino, this rising star of English football, 18-year-old, currently doing very well on loan at Blackpool, he's out of contract in 2023. Arsenal, again, have an option to extend by two years. Uh, However, there is an expiry for that option at a set date in the coming months. And if they don't get it done before then, and, and as I understand it, talks haven't started yet, then they'll have to renegotiate afresh with him as well. And there are a lot of clubs who are looking at him, although he's very happy at Arsenal. So that is a, a major task for Edu, who we mentioned there. When you speak to people across the game, there's been interest in Edu from elsewhere. He's had opportunities, but they are going to hope to keep this nucleus they've got together now at executive level and at Uh, player level. If Arsenal make it into next season's Champions League, then the revenues will take a massive uplift. Don't forget that the Cronkies have been largely funding this process um, in what exactly what form, in terms of loan or equity or whatever, I'm not an expert on. But, um, you know, it's it's a serious undertaking and, 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 and it's something that Liverpool have Uh, seen themselves because I remember speaking to so many people at Arsenal a number of years ago and the closest comparison they drew to how they would like to rebuild and the inspiration they could take was actually Liverpool who like Arsenal lost the Europa League final and although they stuck by Jurgen Klopp and Arsenal changed from Unai Emery to Mikel Arteta they were very determined on the path they were on how they wanted to do it and where they wanted to go and and Arsenal appear to be getting towards there. They're still behind, way behind what Liverpool have achieved in recent years. And Jurgen Klopp just signed a new contract. So I don't think he'll be thinking anything other than enthusiastically about this and and, and determined to turn it around. I do find it really interesting that Michael Edwards, as technical sporting director, um, decided to leave. Maybe he felt it was the end of his cycle, whether he also felt it was the end of Liverpool's, I don't know. And there was a very smooth transition to his assistant, Julian Ward. It's going to be, it is a tough period for him now early in the job. And I'm intrigued to see how it goes. I think Arsenal may be looking to do a bit of a restructure themselves in terms of those um, executive roles, but using existing personnel as well in recruitment and so on in academy Two. So they are really interesting parallels, the two clubs to talk about and contrasting fortunes at the moment, but we know how quickly things can change. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. 
You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is supported by FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League Two after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the team's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher league. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenge and rise again into League One? FX is welcome to Wrexham. All new Thursdays on FX. Stream on Hulu. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Samiro, Kansas. But he does well to win it back off of Wolby. And he's on the same wavelength as his old Real Madrid teammate, Ronaldo. And that is goal number 700 of his club career for Manchester United's number seven. To end the pod, we'll talk about Manchester United, who got uh, back on track somewhat with a win. Uh, at Goodison against Everton, the Athletics' Laurie Whitwell was there for us and joins us now. It felt in many ways a, a little bit like a typical Manchester United performance in that there's some good, some bad, and because they haven't put the game to bed, they then found themselves under pressure for the last 10 minutes. Yeah, it was a quite a funny end to the game, wasn't it, with Jordan Pickford not leaving United's half for the final two minutes. Um, you had sort of Eric Ten Hag and Eric Ramsey, uh, you know, United's... Uh, a sensible set-piece coach um, frantically waving their arms to try and figure out who was going to mark him at the set-piece. Luckily, Rafael Varane was on and he kind of flicked the ball away a couple of times, didn't he? But it did invite pressure that you just felt shouldn't have been there really because Everton were were pretty bad. Um, I mean, I, I thought United were okay, but they, they weren't incredible. You know, they, they, they did sort of good 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 working moments but it wasn't like a consistent performance throughout which as you say you know we've become accustomed to I thought Everton gave the ball away a lot and United really should have put the foot down before then I mean I suppose if Marcus Rashford's goal stands then it's a different complexion on, on that finale but I still thought there was chances before that for United to put the game to bed. Uh, I suppose the two biggest positives Ronaldo probably his best game under Ten Hag I mean I, I know I know the barometer's not massively high for that so far this season uh, and Casemiro starting in the Premier League yeah first start for Casemiro uh, and wins Man of the Match award I don't know what did you think of it Chappers um, I thought it was a bit generous uh, maybe I, well I thought he was United's best player I have to say I thought I'd, okay. and they they did a bit on him on Match of the Day too last night and what what Danny Murphy pointed out was that even when he gave the ball away uh, he never panics uh, and more often than not then wins it yeah. wins it back um, and in the role that he plays maybe occasionally you are going to you are going to give it away I'm not sure he was completely to blame for the for the for, for the Everton goal in the sense that I, I don't think the pass to I, I don't think Anthony's the ball, ball. to Ante, from Ante did him did him many favours but the general feeling was look he ne- he's never rattled 
and he always appears to be in the right place. I mean, he's he's not a headless chicken. Case in point, when he gave the ball away in midfield and immediately robbed Alex Awobi, who appeared yeah. to be yeah. away, and then played a sumptuous slide rule pass, and it just oozed elite, even though he yeah. maybe made a bit of an error. The reaction is often more telling with the top players. Yeah, he's very calm, isn't he? You are right. I mean, the, when he came on at Leicester, for example, you know, uh, it was only the closing stages of that game and he was sort of pointing to people where to be. And he did that throughout the game um, at Goodison Park. You know, that kind of leadership is essential in midfield for United. And maybe they haven't had that. You know, certainly they haven't had a defensive midfielder like he is able to produce. Um, I just, yeah, I did think he kind of gave the ball away. You know, he, well, he gave the ball away 17 times. I'd sort of check the up to stats afterwards, which was the most by a United player. Admittedly, I think you probably are expecting that in, in midfield. You know, he's on the ball a lot, so he's going to try things. You know, he tried a few I mean, the pass obviously to Ronaldo was was brilliant. There was there's actually a ball out to Luke Shaw when he was under pressure from Mope with another bad pass with his sort of back to goal and and he kind of scooped that out to the to the left. And, and there was one where a first time pass around the corner when when Adrissa Garnagay was trying to press him and Everton had a good a good shape actually at that moment. It was quite a dangerous moment and, and Casemiro first time around the corner and that actually was encouraging for me. I mean, listen, he's won five Champions League, so who am I to sort of suggest how he should play in the Premier League? But there's been some people that know a lot more about football than I do who have sort of said to me it will be a transition for him from La Liga to the Premier League and I thought we saw that with that that Anthony pass into him and then him trying to take a touch and you know Anana was straight on him and he, and he lost the ball there in that first five minutes so that was kind of an example maybe where I thought you know perhaps against the the teams that have Everton standard in La Liga you, you can kind of get away with that um, but he's, he obviously adjusted and there was moments then later where he was playing it first time and, and I think that's a, a positive thing so yeah I can see why he won the won the man of the match, and I also wonder whether the other thing, the other thing, Laurie, that maybe you you can't massively measure, but the centre halves weren't under anywhere near the same amount of pressure that it feels like they have yeah. been at other times, and that may be maybe something about Everton. It may be actually that Lindelof and Martinez had had decent games as well as a, as a duo, but they didn't seem. Apart from that last 10 minutes, they didn't seem under the pump as a central defensive duo. You look, don't look at Everton's team and think there's there's lots of creativity there or there's lots of, you know, yeah. high-octane pressing. You know, they, they obviously, you know, sat back really. You know, there was a few moments where they tried to press United when they had the ball in, in defence, but it was, it was let's try and nick it in midfield and, and break quickly, which is obviously how they scored their goal. Um, so, yeah, I agree. I think, you know, that, that helped. I mean, Martinez, I do, I do really think that... He's such a point of debate, isn't he? But those options that he brings when he's on the ball, those passes that he can produce, it's it's almost like having an extra midfielder, really, at times um, when he steps up. But back to your original point in Ronaldo, Chappers, I, I do think it was a, a good game for him. And yeah, I kind of sort of look at the Ammonia game in Cyprus as a double-edged sword where... Yeah, he didn't score, and he certainly tried often and frequently. But at least he was in those positions to to you know miss the chances, and um, and he certainly looked committed last night. He was dropping back, even wanting to nick the ball at one point um, to, to to win it back. And and the finish was was unerring. We kind of expected it from him, I suppose, but it wasn't a chance that you'd say was a given, you know, on his left foot. So I mean, at least that's a sign that if Martial is going to be injured for a little time, and it's it's frustrating, isn't it? A third injury already this season. Clearly, Tanar can't actually rely on him as a centre forward out and out week and week because you know we've had these issues before so Ronaldo's going to have to step up just off the field both of you talk about this because this is in David's column today about uh, away tickets allocation for for Manchester United but maybe it's slightly broader than that it's just not not United but 
the police in various cities appear to be getting a lot, a lot stricter when it comes to kickoff times and and fan numbers. Actually, you're right, Chappers, because it does feel like it's a, a sort of prevailing mood amongst the authorities. This one kind of troubled me just because. I don't know what the precedent is for it. You know, a 5.30 kickoff, Chelsea v Man United, what's what's the issue? There's been a Carabao Cup game, uh, which was a midweek 8 o'clock kickoff, which had 4,000 Man United fans there. So, you know, uh, well, 2,500 more than the police originally wanted to give United for this fixture. Um, there's been multiple occasions of that. You know, I mean, AC Milan had, you know, 3,000 fans over at Stamford Bridge um, in midweek, you know, a, a nighttime kickoff. So I don't, I don't really know what the metrics are, what, what, what's the formula for deciding this high risk branding. There's something about weekends, isn't there? I think because, for example, Manchester United Leeds was, um, was postponed because of the of the period of mourning that that we were in but that was a two o'clock kickoff at Old Trafford the derby at Manchester City was a two o'clock kickoff and wasn't allowed as I understand it to go at, at 4 30 by the police but and, and Manchester United Liverpool had to be played on a Monday night at eight o'clock I think for similar similar reasons in that week nights and these are different police forces, by the way. One we're talking with Greater Manchester, aren't we? And now this one with the with the Met Police. Weeknights appear to be viewed differently to weekends after four o'clock. It's definitely the case, but is there evidence for that? I mean, I'd like to see. It seems just arbitrary that we've all, all of a sudden got this kind of well. This is these are the rules, you know. This 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 thing about London clubs agreeing with the authorities not to have a kickoff beyond 4.45 seems to have kind of come about I don't know when I've asked the Met this question I've not yet got a response but you know they had Spurs v Leicester was a half five kickoff um, on Saturday um, recently so I don't know what what categorises a match as being particularly more high risk I I don't really remember Chelsea v Man United maybe historically in the 80s there was a bit of trouble but I don't know maybe I'm being naive to that and and really if you're going to impose these kind of sanctions I think that we should be able to see what the workings out for them are you know they should be public you know, it's the police. Obviously, a publicly funded um, entity. You know, why can't people understand where they come from with these decision making? And, and what troubles me is the fact that it. I mean, you know, they, they United offered to have stewards there to send stewards at their own cost to kind of ma- mitigate the crowd, uh, also to have alcohol free in that away end. And the Met said no, it won't. It won't get you one extra seat. You know, for for what we're willing to give. I don't know how they gained. You know, they originally wanted to have fifteen hundred in that section, and now they're up to sort of 2,300. So why did they move the dial on that for no reason? You know, what, what's so it just seems so random that they've kind of come to this conclusion. Um, I mean, there's lots of different questions. So are we are we not to have, you know, an FA Cup final at half five anymore? Um, for example, um, you know, are, are there certain games that d- you just can't have in London? I mean, the other thing about that that day, there's nothing else going on in London. You know, it's 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 pretty clear. Whereas yesterday uh, in London, there was you know Liverpool, at Arsenal, there was. Um, West Ham and Fulham, uh, there was Crystal Palace and Leeds, you know, lots of away fans in the capital, um, but they all managed to go off without a hitch. So I don't really know why United Chelsea has been targeted in this way. Depending on when people are listening to this, when should we hear from United what they plan to do, Laurie? 
I think it's today, you know, so this is Monday that we're recording this Monday morning. They want to get it sorted quickly because obviously it's dragged on for a number of weeks. They've already sold these tickets. That's the issue, you know. It's got to this point, you know, two weeks ahead of the game. Um, these tickets have already been sold. So people have made travel plans. Um, they've probably booked accommodation if they want to stay over because it was, you know, an evening kickoff and maybe make a night of it in London. So I just think it's it's disdain really for match going fans. United are in talks with fan advisory groups to um, sort of work out the fairest way of kind of getting these 600 odd tickets back you know sort of remove them from the allocation um they don't want to do a ballot ultimately they think that's a bit too arbitrary but um there's maybe mechanisms that they can kind of figure out to uh, see if people will volunteer to, to have their ticket refunded and, and maybe they can i don't know could could they get credit for an, another game in future i don't know if that actually will shake down but there's different ways of doing it but i think they want to get this urgently sort of sorted out right thanks laurie uh david we will uh, end it there and we'll have more tomorrow the Athletic.